0: You are listening to a teaching series from Jubilee Church entitled, From This Day Forward. Whether you are currently married or want to be married, this series discusses three commitments for starting fresh in the fight against marital destruction and unhappiness. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Good morning. Welcome to—well, good morning to you, too. Um— we are starting a new series called From This Day Forward, and the women are like, finally, a series on relationships. And, and I know the men are thinking, uh, I was just starting to like you. And so uh, if you're not, sometimes men and women have a different view of the relationship. I know it's true in our marriage. So like, even if how I rank, the, like if somebody asked me, hey, how's your marriage? I'm like, it's a 10. And, and she may, well, maybe six or seven, uh, Rachel. And so if I'm saying like the marriage is a six or seven, it, it probably is a one. It's Probably like I need to do something really quickly. Because it's just not as, as in tune. I mean, I'm not trying to um, stereotype or anything like that. But I just know like, when, it's like, I'll say it this way. So, so I sometimes will think about our relationship. Like sometimes maybe my wife would, would think about how the car. Like she, she does, she's not interested in knowing how it works. She just wants to know that it does work. And she's not interested in, in making it better. She just wants, so I'm the kind of the same way. So we'll, like, we'll be driving around the car. And uh, I'll hear this noise. And I'll be like, do you hear that? And she's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, do you hear that little humming? I'm like, shh, you know, turn it, you know, be quiet. and Like, let's hear this noise. And she's like, oh, that? I just turned the radio up. And so we'll keep on driving. And, um, and so like, when, when she, I remember when we first got married, she had a, she had a car named Rusty, which just kind of tells you where this is going. And so this car, like she, if she, it had the worst alignment you would have ever seen in your life. Like if she just let go of the steering wheel. It would just like turn in a, in a, in a circle. And she would, she had, she had always a can of, of brake fluid like in the car. I'm like, what's it? She's, well, she fills it up every time she gets into the car. She fills it up to make sure there's brake fluid because it's, it's leaking brake fluid. But that wasn't a problem. So we, um, we go into, we finally I say, you, we got to get this car checked out. And uh, we get checked out, and the, and the car like, literally got confiscated and says, like, okay, we can't allow this car in the road. I'm surprised it hadn't just split in two. And so her view of the car is like, hey, if it, as long as it's not dead on the road, it's fine. I'm like, that's how men think about relationships. As long as it's not, like, dead on the road, everything's fine. If it's no, like, there's no reason to be so fine-tuned about. So there's a little bit of a difference when it comes to this. And um, it, and, and some people are like, "Do we really have to talk about? Because this is an uncomfortable subject. Cause I don't like, you know, I don't want to talk about uh, this relationship." But yes, we do uh, have to talk about it. Um, you don't have to be insecure men about talking about relationships. Um, I know. Anyway, so we, we can we can do this, and we need to do this because this is very important. We all know the stats, and the stats are not good. They're depressing. Uh, uh, it, the marriages have about a fifty percent success rate. Like they or failure rate, however you want to look at it. It depends if you're optimistic or pessimistic. It just they did, it doesn't matter how educated you are. It doesn't matter what your race is. It doesn't matter your background. It's, it's your odds of sticking it out for the long haul in a marriage is no better than the flip of a coin. It's just not very good. And even if you do last, uh, a lot of marriages aren't really happily ever after. There's commitment without intimacy. There's faithfulness without passion. And and it's gotten people to say, well, is it even worth it? I mean, is it even possible to have a happy marriage? And I just want to say right off the bat, it is absolutely possible. But I got to be honest with you, it's not probable. A happy marriage is absolutely possible, but honestly, it's not probable if you do things the way everybody else does things. If you do marriage the way everybody else does marriage, if you have a mindset of your life and your relationships the way everybody else has a a perspective of their life then you're going to have no better odds than than 50-50. And there's probably not not many things that we would accept 50-50 odds are. Like, I don't know if you would bank at a bank where they said, hey, you know what, there's a 50-50 chance that you may lose all your money. You would probably go to a different bank. If you ate cereal that causes some disease, you would probably change the cereal that you ate. Um, So you would make that change. But somehow in marriage, we're somehow content with 50-50 odds. We keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And now what's funny to me, and by funny, I mean really sad, is like to get a driver's license. I mean, to get a driver's license, you have to take a course, you have to pass a driver's test, you have to pass a written test, you have to have insurance in case something goes wrong, and then we'll give you a driver's license. As long as the person you want to marry is not your second cousin, for 50 bucks, you can get married. No test, no insurance in case something goes bad. I mean, it's just like, you can, you can do this. There's no, so we want to invest in marriage. We want to take this opportunity to invest in marriages. And I think this is going to be applicable, not just for those who are in marriages, but those who are approaching marriage or hope to be married one day. But to be honest with you, this is just garden variety as well. Uh, marriage, uh, excuse me, relationship advice. This is going to make our relationships better. And I think in particular, our marriages and um, one of the things that we want to characterize uh, this series is that when, when you do get married, there's, there's vows that you take. And in those vows, like, so my wife is Rachel, so I, my name Rachel. And so when I took Isaac, like, I, Brian, take Rachel to be my wife, to have and to hold. And then we all know the line from this day forward. And I love that line from this day forward, which is the title of the series, because it's just filled with hope. It's filled with like, no matter what's happened in the past, no matter the struggles that we've had in the past, the difficulties, from this day forward, things are going to be different. I just would love it. I would love it, to, regardless of where you're at in your relationship, that you would have a from this day forward mindset. If you want the best chance of your best future, is okay. From this day forward, we're going to make some commitments. In fact, for the next four weeks, only is through four commitments that I think are going to improve your marriage. I think transform your marriage. And for those who are looking to, for marriages, uh, forward to marriage, you're going to set yourself up better for success. And like I said, this is going to help any relationship. This, this, this is going to apply uh, in our friendships, uh, mother-daughter, father-son, brother-sister. And so the first commitment, the first commitment we're going to look at today is relinquishing expectations, relinquishing expectations. I want to ask you to make the commitment from this day forward to relinquish expectations, because we all come into relationship with a certain level of desire and hope for that relationship. If you're dating someone or hope to date someone, you probably have a list. This is what they're like. This is what they're going to be like. And then, and then you have what the relationship This is how many kids we're going to have. Uh, this is how money we're going to be spent. This is where we're going to live. We're going to buy a house. We're going to rent a house. We're going to, uh, this is how many times a year we're going to see my family. You have this idea of what this the relationship's going to look like you have these desires, these hopes, these dreams for your spouse, for the relationship. Now the challenge is that our daydream about the future always organize, organizes itself around me. My dreams, my future, my hopes, these are my dreams, my hopes, which makes sense because it's almost normal because what else am I supposed to do? I, mean, I can. Only, it's only natural that I that I dream about my hopes and my dreams and my desires, and so we all approach marriage with clarity about what we want absolute clarity about what me want and we walk down the aisle with all these desires in the back of us which is why couples are so happy when they walk down the aisle i mean when they when they, when they say their vows they're, they're they're not they're not happy because of the they're not even paying attention to what i'm saying like when i say this is the they don't even look i like Come on, i'm over here so they're not even paying attention to me but they're just looking at each other like googly eye and they're, they're just like um and what they're thinking about in the back of their mind they may not verbalize this. they're thinking about man my hopes my dreams this person is going to fulfill my hopes and dreams. And that's why they're so happy. And so what happens, though, is that they, they, they say the... Yeah, whatever, I'll say those vows. They say the vows. They say I do. They go on their honeymoon. I don't know when it happens on the honeymoon or maybe a few weeks later. And something begins to happen subconsciously without warning and without notice that impacts that relationship more than you could ever think or imagine. And what happens is all those desires, You know, what's, what are gonna be our roles? Where are we gonna live? Uh, what will romance look like? I mean, you know, you know, women, you you have certain desires for you know what things are going to happen, you know, and men have their desires, and 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 it, it and so we bring that into the relationship. But when, so when you were my fiance, we dreamed, we hoped, we explored, and anything was possible. But now that you're my wife, I expect. Now that you're my husband, I expect. And listen to me. Couples are often bewildered by this and, and, don't, and fight over it and divorce over it, and they don't even know that transition that happened. That's somewhere along the line. These hopes and dreams and desires transferred over into a category called expectation. And now these things that they hoped for, things that they dreamed about, which are good, they're fine, they're, they may even be godly, they become expectation. And the dynamic of the relationship instantly changes. And because there are now two me's in the room and there's really only space for one we. And so these dreams and hopes and desires that we have that are good, there's nothing wrong with them. To the other person, it begins to feel like expectation and something to live up to. And an expectation, if you're unfamiliar with the definition, is it's just something that you have a strong belief that you think will happen or will be in the case in the future. It's a strong belief that this will happen or it will happen sometime in the future. So it's, honey, I know we're not there yet, but we're getting there, right? I I know we have some work to do, but we'll, we'll, we'll get where we need to be, right? It's a subtle pressure that things are going to be the way that you imagine them to be. It's a subtle pressure that you put on the other person that things are going to be the way that you imagine them to be. And anytime you try to shape the future of that relationship, it begins to feel like an expectation to the other person in the relationship. And what happens is your marriage becomes a, a negotiation. Your marriage becomes a negotiation. So I'll do my part if you do your part. We'll split the bills. We'll split the responsibilities. You know, you can have your TV. I get my, you know, bedroom set. You can have your friends and I have my friends. You have your hobbies. I have my hobbies and we'll split holidays. You know, I'll take Thanksgiving, Christmas and Easter and you can have Labor Day and Groundhog Day. You know, we'll just be even with it. Like, just, we'll just split everything up and, you know, you do your part and I'll do my part and everything is going to work out. Now, on the surface, this may seem okay. And maybe some of you are like, well, that's what the marriage I'm in. That's the way it works for us, but here's what happens. The problem with that marriage is it's very much a commitment to me, and there is no commitment to me, and when things go bad, the concern, the prayer request is often for my marriage. I'll get that. Brian, will you pray for my marriage? Now, I don't say this. I want to, and so now it's my opportunity to say it, is that just I want to mirror that back and just say, can you, Can you?" I think I may have just noticed what some of the problem is with with your marriage, because it isn't your marriage. There, there's, there's like another person involved. Because what, they're, what subtly, they don't, sometimes we don't even know we're saying this, is that when we say my marriage, we're saying my hopes, my desires, my dreams, my expectation. Let me just say this. And I know this may sound strange until I say the full sentence, so bear with me. Rachel isn't so much interested in me being committed to my marriage. She is committed interested in me being committed to her. Nowhere in the Bible does it say be committed to marriage. It says be committed to other people. And there's a big difference. Because in the marriage is, is really what we mean is, is wrapped up of these dreams and desires and hopes that become expectation. When in reality, that's not how relationships work. In reality, it's about the other person. So the inevitable result of these expectations is you have a debt-debtor relationship. You have a debt-debtor relationship because another way of expressing an expectation is you owe me. You're my wife, you owe me. You're my husband, you owe me. And you could probably make a very compelling case for why they owe you. I mean after all, in this the way the wife's supposed to be, after all, in this the way a husband is supposed to be, am I not justified in expecting these things from my husband? Am I not justified in expecting these things from my wife? However, the problem with this kind of relationship is you cannot recognize or receive love. You cannot recognize love and you cannot receive love. You can't give love and you cannot receive it because your expectation is that they do these things for you. That's how this works. That's our thing. Is you do these things for me. How much credit does a spouse get if they do that? Not much. Congratulations, you're at ground zero. Thank you for meeting my expectations. There's no affection, there's no there's no love there. I'll illustrate it this way: if you owe me money, you can't give me money. If you owe me money, you can't give me money. If you owe me money and you give me money, I don't see it as a gift, I receive it as payment. I receive it, I see it, I view it, and I receive it as payment. So If you say, Brian, I want to give you $100, but you owe me more than $100, when you give me that $100, not only will I not thank you, I will say, where's the rest? So my mortgage company, I never get a call. I never get a call. Mr. Mario, I just want to thank you for that payment. It was totally unexpected. It's not... You know, I just can't believe how, you know, Jenner, thank you so much for the, you know, they, they don't call me. In fact, I, and, and when things are going, I can't, I can't engage in conversation. I mean, I try to get a hold of my mortgage company and they send me on some phone maze. And I, I talk to people all over the world and hit buttons and I never get to, but guess when they do want to talk to me, when I don't make the payment, when I don't make the pay, I get a lot of attention. I get a lot of phone calls. I get a lot of emails. I get a lot of letters. I get—I mean, sometimes, if if it gets really bad, I'll get personal, in-person attention, and uh, that's the way sometimes marriages are. Is when you when you have when you live off these expectations, it's like there's no affection given. There's the communication isn't over. Thank you for doing that because well, that's what I expect you to do. Where the communication kicks in, is when you don't do what I expect you to do, and now there's problems. So how do we keep this from happening? How do we keep, I'll go ahead and say legitimate hopes, dreams, desires from becoming expectations. Well, here's what you need to do. When you look at the happiest relationships, uh, particularly when you look at the happiest um, marriages, when you ask the question, what does your spouse owe you? Their answer is nothing. The happiest marriages, when you ask them, what Does your spouse owe you? The answer is nothing. Now, if you if you're saying, "Well, I'm in a marriage and I expect things and I'm happy," well, I'm guarantee you they're not, because I mean that's a different thing. That's not a negotiation. Um, That that's a controlling relationship, and that's a whole nother deal. That. so at this dynamic, so the, the best relationships are the ones that say my spouse does not owe me anything. In fact, you may say my I owe my spouse everything, and I don't expect I don't they don't owe me anything in return. The best marriages are the ones where the spouse says I owe you everything, and you don't owe me anything. And this is a, this this idea is this dynamic is at the very center of what's supposed to be at all. Christian relationships, especially marriages. Now just so if you're unclear about what I mean by that is like what I don't mean is some code of conduct, like the way Christian marriages and relationships, they work off a code of conduct. In fact, it's the complete opposite of that. So I'm gonna explain where I, I get that from. What the best relationships, the best marriages are characterized what I would call a submission competition. The best marriages are what I would call a submission competition, where there's not a race to the front of the line, there's a race to the back of the line. And where I got this from, or where we get this from, it's not special to me, is, is it all started with something that Jesus said. So in the, in the life of Jesus, just a few hours before he was going to uh, be arrested, falsely accused, and executed, he got his closest friends together in what's known as the upper room, and he had what's called the Passover meal with them. He says, I'm I'm going away. Where I'm going, you can't go with me, but there's some things I want you to remember. And one of those things that he wanted to remember is this statement right here. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Then they may have said, that's not new. And he would have said, well, I'm not through. I want you to love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another one another. You are to treat other people. Here's, this, here's the big secret to any relationship, friendships, uh, mother, daughter, sister, brother, especially marriages. You treat one another the way I have treated you. You've heard of the golden rule. The golden rule is you know treat other people the way you want to be treated. This is the platinum rule. This is you treat other people the way Christ has treated you. And then he could have gone around the room to illustrate his point. He could have said, you know, Matthew, when I found you, you were a tax collector. You were an embarrassment to your family. You were an embarrassment to your nation. Nobody wanted to be around you. What did I do when I when I found you? He's like, well, you asked me to come with you. Yes, I did, and I you came with me. And Peter, remember, like when I called you, you really don't have anything to do with tax collectors. But I said, you can both be invited. And I, and I accepted you both. Yeah, you're right. And then he went back to Matthew. Remember what happened when you did follow me? Remember where we first went? He's like, yeah, I remember that. We went to your house. Yeah, we went to my house. And we invited all your tax collector friends. And Peter's like, yeah, I remember that day. That was the worst day of my life. And so they all came together. He's like, look, I treated you. I embraced you. I allowed you to be a part of who I am. What I'm doing, and then he would have found Nathaniel. Nathaniel, we don't know much about Nathaniel, but here's what we do know. Nathaniel, he when he first heard about Jesus, that Jesus was from Nazareth, he's like Nazareth. Can anything good from Nazareth? And so Jesus might have said to Nathaniel, "Man, you dissed me, and you dissed my whole family. You dissed my grand family. You dissed my little league. You dissed all my friends. Like, and I, you just dissed everything that I knew. But I still invited you in, and I never brought it up ever, ever again." And he could have just kept going around it. As I have treated you, as I have shown you mercy and grace, you treat other people with the same mercy and grace. And a few hours later, he would be arrested, like I said, and he would be falsely accused, and he would be executed, and the disciples would have had an aha moment. They're like, not only that, but Jesus died for us, and we are to lay down our lives on behalf of, Of others, and this is so huge. This this platinum rule is this 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 is the thing. Um, This is every New Testament imperative keys off and tees off this big idea that as Christ loves us, we love other people. As Christ, that is so simple. It's but yet so profound and almost impossible to live out and very few do but this is what it is the best relationships especially the best marriages as Christ has loved you you love other people and a few years later gaining paul who once uh, tortured christians who arrested christians who even killed christians i mean if you're here and you hate christians you would love paul i mean you may hate christians in your mind but he hated them as a career and he, he, but he had this miraculous encounter with Jesus and he, just like many of you have, and he became a Jesus follower and he became a key leader in the church and he wrote a big chunk of the New Testament. He wrote one letter to the church in Ephesus and he applied this platinum rule to relationships just as Jesus did specifically the marriage relationship. When he said this, he says in Ephesus, he says, this sounds very similar, similar to what Jesus said to the disciples. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so, with, you know, just as Christ, so Jesus said, love others just as I have loved you. Paul says essentially the same thing, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The best way relationships work is when they engage in a submission competition where the person who wins is the person who's last. I'm going, you know, that's what Jesus said. The first shall be last, last shall be first. It's a race to the bottom. It's not a race to the top. It's not a race to exert your control over someone else. It's not, it's not a race to try to get something from them. It's a race to the back of the line. It's a submission competition. And then this one. Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Let's pray. And so... um, (laughs) Man, I, you know what? Just to say this, and I don't mean to, like, I realize this is offensive, and in some ways I'm glad it offends you because I have an opportunity here. In fact, and just, I just may leave this up the whole time. Just leave this up. You come back next week, it's up here. But I want, it's, there's some things about this, though, that I want us to understand because I think when you understand not only the context, but what Christ is trying to call all of us to, this is, is not, is, is not as, doesn't cause us to bristle as much as it, it does cause us to bristle. And there's a couple things for this. One is um, uh, this in this context, this would not been a huh, but a duh. And what I mean by that is like when <laughs> in this in this cult. So if you, st- I know we don't we don't have time to study ancient culture, but if you studied ancient culture. The, the norm, and this is what was so unique about what Jesus had to say, this was so unique about what the New Testament writers had to say, nobody was saying was no, nobody was bringing a quality of women into the picture. Because in that context, so Paul, speaking into, Paul is speaking into a context, into a culture, no matter what the country was, was speaking to a context where women, well, children and women, were treated as property of the husband and the father. And so when Paul says, women, you know, submit to your husbands, they're like, well, what choice do I have? This wasn't like, this was like a duh, like, why are you even saying this? But it's the next phrase that would have been utterly, utterly shocking. And I would imagine when Paul said it, a bunch of people left the room. When he said, he turns to his hus- the husbands, he said this. In the same way, See that word? In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So the first part wouldn't have been shocking, but this would have been, this would have been like, what in the world are you talking about? This is, this is crazy. So Paul's like, okay, look, if you can't get the whole theology thing about Jesus and the church, let me say this a little bit differently. You should love your wives as your own bodies. You should love your wives as your own, but you are responsible to care for your wife. You're responsible to love your wife as if she was you. And without the spirit of God speaking to their heart, people have been like, whatever, and walked away. And what Paul is saying here, he's bringing, he's coming, and then when he says this, he who loves his wife loves himself, he's speaking there to the mystery of marriage. So the mystery of marriage is that two people become one flesh. It's a mystery of marriage. So, so Paul's like, hey, look, this is yourself. So when you love her, you're loving yourself. Two people become one, there's no division, there's no pulling away, there's not like, you have your hobbies, I have my hobbies, you know, you, know, you take this side of the room, I'll take that side of the room. You, know, there, you are one, you're at this as one. And so I, I know that this sounds intuitive to us, like we would have been like, so when we hear husbands love your wife, we're like, duh. Like, of course they're supposed to, not in this context. And I, th- and, I, and I want us to see how radically committed Jesus and the New Testament writers were to the, the, the value and dignity of all people, no longer Jew or Gentile, black or white, male, female, All there's an equality here. And actually, one of the reasons why now in the United States, in the Western context, because you go to other parts of the world, actually in other parts of the world, the equality of women isn't held up. The dignity of women is not held up. And the reason why it is in our country, the reason why it is in some Western cultures, is because it's a shadow of what Jesus taught. Jesus was the first person to stand up, the only person of authority and influence to ever stand up and say, I say that women have equal value and dignity as women. So there's a two things I do want to point out if, you have, if you're struggling here. One is it's not one-sided. I, the big side of the broad side of the barn today is that the uh, marriages and relationship between a man and a woman work best when it's a submission competition. And that's the way Paul started. He said, you are to submit to one another. Now, the way this works out is you respect and submit to your husbands. The way this works out for you is like you, you got to care for them because men weren't caring for their wives. Like the, they weren't loving their wives as they loved their own bodies. So I had to spell it out for them. He, so what he's saying, he's not saying there's some kind of like teeter-totter. He's saying that this is a mutual submission the, where, the, where in a marriage where a wife respects and submits to her husband. It's not the husband sitting there. He's not sitting on a lazy boy with a remote in one hand and a sandwich in another barking out orders. That's not the picture he's giving here. He's saying he dies to his own desires. He prefers her desires. So he's saying, men, whatever you consider life, what is life to you? Is it... Is it fishing on the weekends? Is it, is it a pile of money? Whatever you would see is life to you and value to you. Put that over here and disregard it and turn to your wife and love her desires and preferences and wants. It is a, it is a, it is a submission competition. It's I am going to put you first. The, the woman saying that to the man and the man saying that to the woman. And second thing, again, I want to say the first person of any influence or authority to ever speak about the, the value of dignity of women who I, I think unquestion advance the value and rights of women more than any other person. Jesus did this. I think every, I think every woman should be a follower of Jesus for no other reason than, what, than how he brought value and worth and dignity to women. And in, in any society that has that right now is a shadow of what Jesus brought. No one ever, was ever talking about this. And Paul picked this up when he says, because of the way your heavenly father feels about the women in your life, you are to treat them with extraordinary value and dignity. And this is why actually women flock to Jesus because of how he treated him, how he I know this sounds strange to even say, but he, that he talked to them, that he touched them and allowed him to touch Him, Uh, they felt valued around him. They felt they supported his ministry. They were part of his ministry, and when and when he rose from the grave, the the, the people who were the first witness the resurrection of Jesus were two women. Now I know that doesn't doesn't even like well of course you know what's the big deal about that? Well, in this context, in this culture, um, um, women's the 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 testimony of a woman in court was was meaningless. In fact, if she was even allowed in a court, uh, but. But her testimony would have been meaningless, and the only reason why the gospels say that two women were the first to see the resurrection of Jesus is because it actually happened. Like if you're fabricating this story, you wouldn't have said that, but the gospels and Jesus, and the New Testament writers are put value in dignity and equality, bringing it to the surface, advancing the cause of, of women all in one fell swoop when he says that you are to be a part of this submission competition. No one had ever said that. Jesus rolled out this idea, and, and, and Paul expands upon this idea. He says, I know you weren't surprised when I said wives submit to their husbands, which is why I said that first. But I'm telling you, if you want to live out the law, this is the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be each one of you, not more valuable than the other, but in the submission competition. So Paul says, love your wives, lay down your wives. If you're holding on, men, if you're holding on to your expectations of your desires and hopes that you'll get out of this marriage, you cannot love her. Women, if you're holding on to desires, hopes that have become expectations, you cannot respect and love your husbands. We have to join the submission competition and relinquish our expectations because your marriage maybe felt like this tug of, you know, it's like this tug of war, like you're pulling, she's pulling, you're pulling, she's pulling, like you're, you're, you're kind of going back and forth, going back and forth and going back and forth. And some of you may be thinking like the, the, this, pr- if I relieve the pressure on him, who's telling what he'll do, it's the pressure, the pressure I'm putting on the relationship is the only thing keeping us together. If, if I let go of the pressure, there's no telling where she'll go. And this scares you because what you'd like to say, okay, you know, like, okay, honey, one, two, three, you know, we both drop the rope at the same time, but it's probably not gonna work out that way. One of you, and I hope both of you, will make the commitment to draw. And that's scary because it puts you in a very, very vulnerable place. But this is the beauty. This is the beauty that we have in Christ, that we have this example and this dynamic to draw upon, that when we feel vulnerable, we can think about the vulnerability that Jesus took on for us that when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he died for us without any expectation of anything in return. And we pull upon this dynamic, how Christ has loved us. And we need to have a fresh revelation of what it means for Christ to love us, that he has loved us. So as he's loved us without any expectation in return, so are we to respect, or excuse me, we are to love others. He died for us, and we need help with this. We need to rely upon God's spirit in us to be able to have the courage to do this. But this is what, this is what the happiest marriages have in common, is they relinquish expectation. When they're asked a the question, what does your spouse owe you? They always answer, nothing. I owe them everything, but I expect nothing in return. Those When it's mutual, when it's like that, those are the happiest marriages. And those are the happier relationships. But it's scary, it's vulnerable. It's not how we're used to doing things. We're used to preferring ourselves. And then once we sufficiently loved ourselves, then we're in the best position to love other people. We know the results of that. And they're not good. Jesus comes along and says, look, as I have loved you, as I treated you, as I has accepted you, So you accept, love, and treat others without any expectation in return. I came not to be served, but to lay down my life as a ransom for you, and for you, and for you, and for you. And if you want your relationships, especially your marriage relationship, to be the happiest it can be, you will take that dynamic to the very center of your life, relying on Jesus for the power and the hope to do that.